Hello and welcome back to Talk Evidence, your periodic look and discussion about the world of evidence. I'm Helen MacDonald, UK Research Editor for the BMJ, and I like to consider myself a resting GP. Um, With 2021 now upon us, I wanted to take some time to pause and revisit some of the evidence that's emerged in 2020 and some of the conversations about how it came into being and how we've acted on it that have dominated our thoughts As you know, I'm usually joined in discussion by Duncan Jarvis and Carl Hennigan, but neither of them are here today. So I have a special festive surprise for you in the form of one of my other lovely colleagues, Joe Ross, who is our US research editor. Joe, could you say a bit more about yourself, listeners? Tell us what kind of doctor you are and what kind of researcher you are. Of course, Helen, thanks for having me on. It's very rare that people call me festive, so that's lovely. So I am uh, the U.S. Outreach and a Research Editor at the BMJ, and uh, I live uh, and am based in New Haven, Connecticut, where I'm a professor uh, at the School of Medicine and the School of Public Health at Yale, and I'm also general internist, where I practice at Yale New Haven Hospital. And you have been um, dealing with the avalanche of COVID research at the BMJ, and you've also got another role in the research world looking at preprints and shepherding them into the world so you've been looking at the the full spectrum you are you are fully bathed in covid it's it's been a it's been an onslaught of a year yes um so along with colleagues from cold spring harbor labs and the bmj a colleague of mine at yale named harlan krumholtz the six of us together launched uh and co-founded med archive the preprint server for the health sciences in june of 2019 not understanding what was to become of it and us as COVID hit. And uh, between that and the BMJ, I think I've been juggling more research articles ever. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll come back to the preprints later. So we're going to talk a little bit about COVID, but we're also going to try and talk about some other things because I'm desperate that we don't spend the entire of 2020 on COVID. So in one of our very early episodes of Talk Evidence um, about COVID, um, I had in my mind that there was this blank canvas and it was quite exciting. I was I was sort of at an intellectual level. I was quite interested to see how this canvas would fill up from kind of knowing nothing to knowing at least substantially more sometime later. So that's how I'm going to think about this episode But I got kind of hit left field first because the first thing I wanted to talk about is how we actually shared that information, how that canvas got populated. And there was one thing I didn't really think about because I had imagined that journals would publish stuff and that it would get kind of press released into the public domain, maybe the key bits of evidence and we would build up this kind of traditional picture. But the whole model of kind of publishing or even getting information out there seems to have been revolutionized somewhat in COVID. So we've had this inversion where we've seen press releasing of data and then journals either following it up as news or printing the evidence sometime later. And we've also seen, Joe, what you've been talking about, the huge rise in preprints and posting that in the public domain and when you conceived preprints you were thinking this is for the scientific community and they're going to do a bit of debate probably buried in a back room somewhere and then it's going to get submitted to a journal when it's ready for the mainstream but this is really throwing things up so what what are your thoughts at the end of this year on how it's panned out? Well, Helen, it's funny that you use the term exciting. I mean, in the sense of like how you viewed that painting being filled in. Uh, And I love that analogy. 
I actually was terrified because in the history of science and medicine, we see, you know, science is slow. It takes investigators don't collaborate or work together and things move along at a pace that, you know, you wouldn't you you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy in the in the context of a pandemic when, you know, there's, a, you know, the, the infection rates are rising and nobody knows how to treat or cure a disease. Right. So I, I was absolutely terrified, like what was going to happen? And I think this is actually one of the great successes of 2020 in the context of this terrible pandemic, the way the scientific community came together. So, you know, we had launched at MedArchive at this platform to enable scientists to share research. Who knew if they were going to use it? I mean, it was embraced in the in the basic science community and basic science investigators had been using BioArchive and other preprint platforms for, for years. But it wasn't something that the clinical research community was was accustomed to doing. But one of the sort of early harbingers of hope that I saw was, you know, within three weeks of the virus being identified, the sequence of that virus was shared widely, right? And I think it was a science article that had been preprinted on BioArchive. I may mis- be misremembering the details. But the point of it was the community was like, hey, we figured something out. Let's share it. Let others see this, see what we figured out so that they can learn from it, they can work from it. And actually, that's been one of the most amazing things through this pandemic is we changed the way we did science for COVID. It hasn't changed all of clinical science, but what we saw was, you know, people releasing, you know, their their data, what they discovered, what they learned, right? You know, you can look at MedArchive and you see these hotspots of papers from Wuhan and then these hotspots of papers from Italy and then these hotspots of papers from, from New York where, you know, people were, you know, just literally characterizing, here are the patients, here's what happened to them, here's what we learned. When we did, you know, this is not a clinical research trial, but when we did this, this, these were their outcomes. When we did this, that was their outcomes. And for sure, it was a little bit like the, you know, the dog chasing its own tail. Like there was a lot of articles that came out that were preprinted that the information that was relevant and useful was hard to find. But others, you know, like the, the, the big studies in, uh, you know, in New York City, all of them were preprinted first. And, you know, several of them were published in the BMJ and then in JAMA and then, you know, in other major journals. So this kind of what came when is is interesting to me because it started with these smaller studies, as you say, like case reports and case series. And then you sort of saw it building. But I hadn't thought of that other thing which you were mentioning, that kind of those geographical waves as to where the pandemic was at that particular point in time. And I guess the things about the culture of medicine or the arrangement of healthcare in those countries that also influenced the types of um, severity of COVID they were reporting on and all all kinds of um, interesting things. And one of the, one of the debates which sort of seemed to erupt, so while we were waiting for these trials, some of these amazing big platform studies that were investigating the treatments of um, COVID-19, we saw um, observational data emerge, looking at the association of having given a particular treatment with outcomes in groups of patients. And the BMJ published one of these on hydroxychloroquine. It came out around the same time as we published a trial on it as well. And the papers had had a commentary which kind of drew them together. But that observational study in particular attracted some I would say external and internal criticism around should we have published that as a, as a major high profile journal should we be publishing studies observational studies of interventions outside the context of a trial what are your thoughts on that well 
I'm going to belie my my prejudice here because I am an investigator that does observational research, right? Uses observational research methods to better understand and characterize, you know, how we treat patients and what works and what doesn't work and the safety and effectiveness of drugs and medical devices. Uh, observational research is a great tool for that. And, you know, in this pandemic, you know, of course, we needed to start trials and to figure out how to do things right. And, you know, these platform trials like the recovery trial, you know, based out of the UK, you know, there were some that were rapidly generating evidence that we could all use. But for lots of decisions, we had, you know, numerous experts and non-experts touting treatments that were being used widely. And, you know, the best guess at sort of figuring out was this in the best interest of patients was going to come from observational research, you know, curating the data that are routinely collected as part of healthcare and, you know, using advanced statistical methods to the best of your ability, like propensity score matching and what and what whatnot, to try to figure out, you know, did this work? Did it improve outcomes for patients? Should we keep treating them this way? But also, I think critically importantly, was it dangerous, right? Because when we're flying blind, it's one thing to try to help people, but it's another thing when our best efforts are hurting people, right? Right? So we have to think about that. So you know, at the BMJ, we published, I think, an awfully small observational study of hydroxychloroquine use, which was the drug, obviously promoted by the President of the United States and many others. This was going to be the magic cure-all. If people, you know, we were going to repurpose hydroxychloroquine, which is usually used for lots of treatment of lots of other diseases, but never for this disease. And um, it was a small study, but it, I think it was most useful, not in its demonstration of the lack of a f- effectiveness of the therapy, but that it gave this signal of harm. And that that is why I think BMJ, we'd made the right decision to publish it. It was not a perfect study. And we were waiting for trials to be done. We were waiting for better studies to be done. But it raised this cautionary flag that this is, this is not for nothing that you're treating people. It's not just like it might help because now we're showing evidence that it actually might hurt. So, you know, so we published that study because we thought it had, you know, potential. But at the same time, we published a trial and it was not the biggest trial. It was a trial run in China. It had also showed that the drug wasn't effective for, you know, for treating uh, patients who had been hospitalized with COVID. And that, I think, is like where BMJ, you know, really led among the major journals, which was this concept of the living review, right? We were going to be needing to aggregate evidence repeatedly to figure out what worked, right? And you played a huge role in that. I mean, you should talk about the, the living reviews and like, and, and all how you spearheaded that. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think living became very much, very much my uh, baby of the year. And I got, got a bit obsessed with living evidence and living guidance. But I think one of the papers I do feel most proud that we published this year was the living systematic review on um, COVID treatments, which was sort of a mixture between being quite reactive and trying to innovate on the spot with also trying to plan and anticipate um, the twists and turns that might happen to that paper and how we would try and communicate it over time. But I think at its heart, the concept of having a living publication is a useful thing, particularly for this blank canvas idea. In fact, in my head with the living research, what I had in mind was that this was us saying this is a really important research question. It's a relevant research question. It's an original research question and we're interested in it, but we don't have the answer yet. And we need to communicate to our readers that we don't have the answer. So we wanted to publish it when it was kind of blank and empty. And we were interested then in tracking it over time and not kind of 
spamming people with loads of different publications, which some of which we might take, some of which might go elsewhere, but that we would stick with the story. And in that same place, you could keep coming back and see how the treatments were evolving ultimately if they prove successful because this was a network meta-analysis how they compared to each other and and that it it should be empowering for healthcare systems to try and pick the things that were actually working and distinguish them from the things that weren't oh it's totally brilliant because it just changed the rules the way we think about you know meta research in the sense of Usually, you know, a team assembles together and says, you know, we need to understand what's the be- state of the evidence right now for how to treat atrial fibrillation. And like we go back, we systematically review the literature, we pull all the articles, we you know, put it, punch everything in and we do our network meta-analysis. And we say, well, it actually turns out that the novel oral anticoagulants, they do really w- do work better than warfarin and blah, 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 all that other stuff. And in this case, it was like, well, here's what we know as of May, but there are seven other trials that are pending. And so in August, we're going to update this because, you know, our understanding, the speed at which we were trying to understand what worked, what didn't work, would any treatment work, right? Uh, you know, was, I, I think, pretty extraordinary. And the, that's the other thing that I, I, I will say, which is that this pandemic in the literature, the research that's borne out really shows you how important it is to focus on the kind of like the bread and butter as opposed to the bells and whistles, right? Because what we really learned was that, you know, standard public health measures worked, right? Not crazy fancy stuff. What we really learned was like, you know, proning positions and using steroids when the when the infl- inflammatory response was as high, it's worked. Not like all these crazy new antiviral treatments. Like, you know, we always reach for the shiny new object in medicine, at least in the United States. Maybe it's different where you are, but everyone always wants the fancy new test, the fancy new treatment. Yeah, I think maybe thing. in the UK, we're more uh, renowned for our cynicism, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're all positive by stereotype over there, cheerful and hopeful, and we're the, the naysayers. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, well, here, Alan Detsky always used to joke, you know, newly approved does not mean new and improved. And, uh, you know, I think yeah. that that's... Uh, you know, one of the problems here in the US, we always reach for the shiny new object when actually we just, it's really the bread and butter, like just like just do the basics and we're going to be better off. Hi, I'm Sabine Goodwin, the coordinator of the Independent Food Aid Network or IFAN. IFAN is the charity that the BMJ has chosen for its annual appeal this year. IFAN supports a range of emergency food aid providers operating across the UK, including over 400 independent food banks. Their work has never been needed more. IFAN also campaigns and advocates for the systemic changes that would reduce the need for charitable food aid in the first place. You can find out more about our work and support us through our donate button at www.foodaidnetwork.org.uk. Thank you very much indeed for your support. Joe, you said this pandemic has really seen the research community pull together and do amazing things. And we've talked a bit about what the people who like to act on their feet and quickly innovate and change things and do things differently have been up to in the pandemic. But there has also been a role for those very quiet, detailed, meticulous planning type people. And and one of the big successes, I think, um, 
that we should reflect on was the fact that there were some people who were ready for this, that were ready for this pandemic and they had protocols for um, descriptive observational studies to describe what happened to patients who were hospitalised with COVID-19 hidden away that they could just quickly activate. And similarly, these big platform trials, there were some protocols that were already there um, thinking about what outcomes were important um, and how we could quickly mobilise trials of potential new treatments. And I think we should talk a bit about those people. So it's funny that you thought that they were there and at the ready. I actually think it was you know, necessity by design in the sense of uh, the um, like the observational work traditionally, at least in my institution, in my experience, it's not always easy to get access to the data within a large health system and to do that research. But the barriers dropped because the informatics people were like, oh, we get it. Like you need to figure out whatever you can figure out. And so we're going to make sure you have these data. The platform trials you know, forever, our funding agencies, you know, there's been experts who've talked about the need for collaboration across sites to do these, you know, major trials. And usually, you know, investigators are like, I'm not sure that I'll get enough credit by participating in your platform trial. I'm not in charge anymore. I'll keep my own trial over here. Thank you very much. And I'll secure my own funding. And I think, again, like the emergency, the pandemic, it dropped the barriers and suddenly people were willing to work together. It would be, I'm sure you've had the recovery folks on, like, was that typical or atypical that everyone agreed? All right, you, we'll all work together. We'll put our data in a standard format. You'll tell us what to use in which case through the randomization. And like, let's just figure it out. Right? I, I think it's actually unusual. It's not that they were ready. It's that people responded to the, the emergency at hand. So you've mentioned some of the trials and the other paper that BMJ published that came out of one of those pre-planned studies was the Isaric paper published by Callum Semple and his team describing the characteristics of people admitted in I think it was around two thirds of uh, UK hospitals and describing their, their initial outcomes. And I have to say, I did feel like a mild sort of almost UK patrioticness in me it's it's very um hard for me to say that i don't often say it but there was there was there, there was um callum's team who were doing this great work describing what was happening to hospitalized patients and you had ben goldacre's data lab team who were describing what had happened out in the community and you had julia hippersley cox with her q research base who is trying to work on these predictive models and it does feel i i do i know we're at the bmj and and probably we perhaps receive a slightly biased sample of research but it did feel like the uk put out quite a good innings um in some senses what what have you been most proud of coming out of the us joe oh that's not fair <laughs> <laughs> You should be proud. If we're going to make this into a competition between the UK research editor and the US research editor. No, no. I I think that, you know, as as a UK editor, you should be proud of the way folks, you know, worked together, collaborated and were being, I mean, these were three foundational observational research projects, right? That this, that never would have happened in the US, right? In the US, you know, the, the bars, you know, the, the walls remained high between institutions. We had we had groups that were essentially publishing on what they learned, you know, throughout the whole NYU health system or through, throughout the whole, you know, uh, Long Island, uh, you know, health system that includes like, you know, 17 different hospitals. The, the work that came out of the Yale New Haven health system, which is seven hospitals, like you'd get all these like individual health systems reporting. But it's not as if we had the sort of the big, 
you know, group where people were pooling their data together, except, of course, out of the, the Veterans Administration. We had some really great research that came out of the VA, which is, of course, nationwide, 150 some odd hospitals that provided some insights into sort of what was happening. But I've been surprised we haven't seen more out of Scandinavia because, I mean, you maybe you have some insights here, but they have their big, big sort of entire population of Finland type type studies. I just haven't seen that much from there. Well, I think that's because they did a much better job of controlling the pandemic in their home uh, borders, right? So they didn't have nearly as many patients as we did in the US and the UK to talk about, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's a mixed blessing that we've been putting out this. <laughs> exactly. You got there's There's both sides to it, for sure. The last thing I wanted to talk about with respect to COVID is communication. And I know this is a topic that I appear to be slightly obsessed with, and perhaps that's because I'm a journal editor um, and and I enjoy communicating things. But another tension, I think, in, in COVID has been around communicating to what extent we know things, to what extent we don't. And, and the word certainty or uncertainty, which I think has been used in, in lots of different ways, particularly with respect to research, in part describing statistical uncertainty or perhaps the certainty more around the kind of quality of evidence that there is. But one thing that I think has been quite difficult for clinicians to manage is the sort of disentangling those things, um, being clear what is uncertain, being clear what is actual evidence and what is opinion and there seems to have been throughout the pandemic certain characters or people who are very happy to come forwards and offer their voice to express something and and I found that it's often difficult to unpick who's actually talking evidence and who is <laughs> just talking sort of in their experience of things and and I do have to say that it's been hard to find women to come forwards to talk about these things a lot more. I don't know Joe how you how you found things in the US. No, I com- I completely agree. I, I I think that um there was a bit of a steep learning curve about how to talk about things when we're uncertain as scientists as researchers. And that you know there's two different potential groups that we had to be three actually to be attentive to. First of course were our colleagues, our clinicians, the people at the front line who were trying to make decisions and as journal editors and investigators, you know, you try to sort of, you know, couch your findings and like what this means and what how certain we are and th- that's hard to do. And clinicians are tasked with you know, making those decisions. And usually they're guided by, you know, professional organizations who have groups that assemble the evidence and help help in that. But everything was moving too fast for that. But what mm-hmm. made this particularly cha- challenging, I think, is that we were also speaking to patients directly and like the general public who were afraid, concerned, out of a job or being forced to work in a way that they thought might be, you know, dangerous or scary. And so how to communicate that and to those to that group and then to politicians, of course, as well, policymakers who were I mean, everyone was being forced to make decisions in the context of uncertainty. And it's much harder to do that. We saw, you know, certainly, you know, disagreements arise within the scientific community around, you know, the lockdowns and like, what does mm. that mean? And what's appropriate public health measures? And in the United States, we had, you know, all this ridiculousness around, you know, whether masks were an expression of freedom, as opposed to a, a means of protecting 
yourself and your loved ones and preventing the spread of disease. Everything got very mixed up with politics as well, didn't it? It, yeah, it was, was just awful. Yeah, that was very hard. In fact, some clarity came to me relatively recently. We did a couple of episodes towards the end of this year, firstly with David Spiegelhalter's team, um, and I interviewed Alexandra Freeman around work that they'd done on individual risk communication. And um, I think two weeks ago, our episode was with... Um, Baruch Fischoff, um, who was talking to us more about the evidence around public health communication. And I think three things which I found very interesting there from my conversation with Alex was around how people understand um, and want information to be expressed to them. And I think really interesting was the fact that people like it to be expressed in personas, by which she explained that as... um, sort of comparing what your risk was to someone that is maybe a bit like a stereotype that you might have in your mind, like someone who is healthy, but in their 70s or is, you know, whatever it is. I thought that was really interesting way that um, understanding in terms of how people's brain brains work. Well, I think the other thing I, wa- I do want to also come back to, in addition to is like the how to communicate is the medium to communicate. And I don't know what mm. it was like in the UK, but in the United States... Actually, that was where I saw all these amazing women really find a platform and a voice to communicate directly with the public. We had all of these physician scientists generate these immense Twitter followings by communicating directly around the extent of the disease. People like Esther Chu, Megan Ranney, Leora Horwitz, Dara Cass, you know, men too, like Jeremy Faust. I mean, there were people who were really using the platform to aggregate and assimilate evidence for both the clinical community and the public in a way that would help them understand it. And so I actually think Twitter became this really incredible medium where you did see women, people of color, you know, be able to find a voice and find and be able to speak directly to the the general public out a little bit outside of the medical journals, interestingly. That's really interesting. And I wonder what cost that came at for some of those people, because some of the sleep, the chains, sleep, um, they, they lost sleep. sleep, they sacrificed their sleep. But also, I think they came in, you know, for some pretty unpleasant um, criticism at times um, that that sometimes the impersonal world of Twitter perhaps allows people to phrase things as feedback in ways that they wouldn't if they were having a face to face conversation with somebody. And I think the other really interesting thing from my conversation with Baruch Fischoff um, around communication of public health messages has been this distinguishing information which is coming with a pure wish to inform you as a member of the public about what's going on or what your risks are versus information which is coming to persuade you to to do something to change your behavior to wear a mask or to stay indoors or to get a test or to get a vaccine and I think as a clinician then trying to wrestle a little bit with which of those things should you be doing? Because I think there is sometimes a tension between sort of giving a recommendation or or putting a sort of spin on a situation as opposed to just giving the facts uh, straight up. Well, sometimes we didn't know the facts. I always like to try to think about anything that I say publicly. How would I say it to my parents or my mother-in-law in a way that didn't induce fear or concern, but was reassuring, but sort of laid out like, here are the basics. This is what to do. Like, We don't know everything yet, but here, you know, here's this is probably what's in your best interest. I'm going to slightly move away from COVID now, because one of the 
harms perhaps of the focus on COVID has been that people's other health conditions have potentially suffered over the course of um, 2020. And somewhere in the middle of the year, I can't quite remember when it was, we discussed on the podcast a piece in The Lancet, a research paper that described the fall off in people presenting with acute myocardial infarction by about 40% during the first uh, wave of the pandemic. Um, And I think understanding the harms of our attention being focused on COVID um, was an interesting theme. And the research editors have been looking back um, in a feature which will be posted on bmj.com around what papers they have enjoyed this year. And one of our colleagues, Tim Feeney picked out this paper, which I thought was also quite interesting. With that in mind, this paper wasn't framed within the COVID pandemic. um, But I think one concern has particularly been around delayed cancer treatments. And I don't know if you saw this paper, um, Joel, remember it from when it was discussed at the manuscript meeting, but this was um, a systematic review and meta-analysis done of observational studies, um, suggesting that as little as a four-week delay in accessing your um, cancer treatment can meaningfully impact um, on your mortality. Yeah, I, I mean, and that's why we thought this was really important to publish, right? Because, you know, small delays in treatment, particularly for Severe, more severe disease where, you know, the days and weeks matter can, can have an impact. And, you know, that's why, you know, right, we were all trying to figure out how to deliver healthcare as best as we could, but we know there were delays and probably the delays in preventive screening are going to be marginal at best so long as people do eventually come back. I can say I haven't been to the dentist in many months because, you know, right, <laughs> right. Like, but that, those, that kind of preventive care, right, you know, you, you hope is going to be, you know, mitigated as long as people can find their way back in. But, you know, de- delays to actual treatment, like when you know somebody needs a surgery to remove a cancerous mm-hmm. tumor, the, the, there's direct harms to that. And, and um, you know, it applies to other medical conditions as well, right? You know, like a valve replacement surgery, if you know a person needs to have it happen, they're at risk of sudden death, right? And so I'm sure some of that happened. Without a doubt, like we were just sort of doing the best we could and there's gonna be, the whole toll is gonna be not known for a couple of years. There were another couple of quite influential or popular papers that um, follow a totally different track. And I'm gonna loosely group them together as having a kind of holiday theme to them or a kind of weight and food theme, which always seems of interest. I was waiting to get to holiday and food. When when I was (laughs) (laughs) So one of these papers, and I think Joe, you and I share a bias of not being particular fans of nutritional epidemiology food studies in uh, in normal language um but these papers always get really accessed and i had a peep on which papers the data isn't isn't fully up to date so i only went as far as june have been most accessed on bmj.com this year and it, and it is covid hands down it's covid but high up there just sneaking in amongst the COVID. a paper about broccoli <laughs> no it wasn't it was about egg consumption. It was a systematic review and meta-analysis of, of some sort of large, well-known cohort studies in the US. And I think the bottom line here was that there was little meaningful link between eating around an egg a day or eating up to an egg a day and um, developing um, cardiovascular disease. And I thought that maybe we should just very briefly touch, Joe, on, um, on food epi and, and why we both seem to love and hate it. Well, 
it's easy to love because it's very accessible. Everyone can understand like, oh, should I eat an egg? Should I not eat an egg? Should I eat more garlic? Should I not eat more garlic? But it doesn't really tell you that, does it? But that's what everybody, that's how it gets interpreted. That's how the media interprets it. That's how the public interprets it. And that's what actually makes me mad, right? Because that is not how you're supposed to interpret it. And I just wish that everyone would just, you know, eat a generally healthy diet, you know, everything in moderation. Like you don't need to be, if you need to be told by a study to eat an egg a day, like, like it, it, or not eat more than one egg a day right exactly like you know if uh, any anyway, i feel like as much i mean there's all sorts of problems in our world with food and the way the nutritional and you know food industries you know have made things less healthy for us but if people are eating whole foods raw foods food you know the general unprocessed foods just you know, eat what you want and get pleasure out of it and use food as a way to sit with your family and sit with your friends. And, and, and that, that's why food epidemiology, nutritional epidemiology makes me mad because it, it turns it into a medicine instead of a, 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 you know, a way to sort of like bring people together. But we do have one colleague who is a big fan of nutritional epidemiology. I know, and He's I hope called, he doesn't I, I think we can name going to be angry at me. <laughs> <laughs> He's called David Ludwig, and and I I, I name check him because I'm going to mention his pick of a study next. I don't think he commented on the egg paper because he had a a conflict of interest because he works with some of its authors. So it would be very unkind of us to link him to that paper or or make any comments that suggest uh, they come from him in any way. But David did pick out this study on weight to mention. And um, he has such a great turn of phrase. I thought maybe I should actually redo what he said. He said, first, the bad news, brackets, which we already know, larger weight circumference is associated with higher mortality rates. Now the good news Larger hip thigh circumferences are associated with lower mortality rate in their dose response meta-analysis of 72 prospective studies. These authors included around two and a half million people. I've now gone out of David's language because he's he's going on a bit. But the bottom line here (laughs) is that their study adds to our understanding that simple measures of weight such as body mass index or BMI, as as clinicians probably more commonly describe it, don't tell the whole story. And where a person stores fat and the relative amount of their lean mass may be more important for long-term health than the number on the bathroom scales. And I did think that was quite an interesting message for Christmas, Joe. Did you find that any, any more helpful than the eggs? Well, I mean, David's brilliant and he sees things in a way that I don't, but I would just... You know, people know when they're overweight and, you know, they know that it's it's not great for their long term health. I think as I saw the study that, you know, of course, it tells you sort of the where your weight is being held does carry some risks. And we know like, you know, the, the apple shape versus pear shaped, you know, carries different, you know, cardiovascular risk. And we know that people who are heavy because they're putting on muscle carries a different cardiovascular risk than people who are heavy because they're they're holding on fat. But I just hope that, uh, you know, people, uh, it, to me, it feels like it, it like gets to this issue of like, we, we, we know it's better to be healthier. It's better to be, you know, slimmer, you know, we, and uh, my, I'll just come back to it. My, the, the, the tip that I get into it is like, you know, that we get push all, we tell them people, tell people this and then push all this processed food that makes it so hard to keep weight off. And, you know, that it's like this imbalance in the way we sort of present the research, but like, that's choices that are available to people. Wow. 
Well, I think we've reached the end of today's episode and I hope that rounds off 2020 or starts 2021 for you in an informative way. Um, If you've enjoyed listening, you can subscribe to Talk Evidence wherever you access your uh, podcasts from. And you can also subscribe to the BMJ's other podcasts, um, including Deep Breath In, aimed at primary care, audiences and well-being. I'm sure Duncan and Carl would join me in wishing you all the best for 2021. And in the meantime, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And as Duncan always says, take care out there.